0: Welcome to another edition of Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, Matt is the gatekeeper and I am the key master. Today we rinse off the ectoplasm and face down Gozer the Gozerian. Today, cats and dogs living together. Mass hysteria. Today, Ghostbusters. I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And I'm Matt, and I'm the pastor here
1: at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia.
0: And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that we are supposed to watch and are relevant to our work as ministers. Last time we were together, Matt decided we had to go and watch Ghostbusters, so that's what we've done. In our first segment today, called Justification by Faith, I have to ask Matt to defend his pick of Ghostbusters. Why does this movie, Ghostbusters, matter for the work of the church? In our
1: second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Ghostbusters for the lectionary week coming up, which is Year C, March 20th, the final Sunday in Lent, Palm Sunday. And then finally, in our third segment, we'll offer up some postludes, some theological thoughts from each of us on something
0: else that we're watching or reading or following. So, to the first part of the show, Justification by Faith. Matt, not long ago, I saw a description of The Wizard of Oz, which read, Transported to a surreal landscape, a girl kills the first person she meets and teams up with three strangers to kill again. Inspired that by that piece of genius, here's my description of Ghostbusters. Shunned by traditional institutions, three entrepreneurs start a small business only to be hampered by the government and two rich elites who turn into dogs. As I watched this movie for a hundredth time, I was reminded that this movie tends to defy traditional genre conventions. It's a little bit screwball buddy comedy, a little bit of horror horror story, but in the Laurel and Hardy meet Frankenstein vein. It's an action blockbuster. It's also a superhero movie in that the stakes are nothing more than the whole world itself. It's also an anti-institutional, anti-authoritarian diatribe. Ultimately, as I watched it again, I remained astounded that given this odd mix of genres, that I love it as much now as I did when I was 10 years old. It's a movie that just holds up so damn well. What stood out to me on this watching is that while it stands in the vein of all of these other Ivan Reitman pictures like Stripes and Meatballs and the Harold Ramis written movies like Animal House and Caddyshack, what stands out is that it has an actual female lead who is worth a damn. And I think that the addition of Sigourney Weaver elevates this movie to new heights above uh, movies like Stripes and movies like Caddyshack. Like four feet above the mattress four. above. <laughs> like four feet above. So, listen, we could, uh, we could just talk forever reciting lines to each other like we just did. Um, but really, Ghostbusters, I mean, Ghostbusters, what does Ghostbusters have to do with our work as preachers and teachers?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to love in this movie, and I don't think you're going to find us doing a lot of critical back and forth, trying to justify its inclusion in our own personal canons. But watching it in the context of this podcast, and watching it in the context of ministry, what struck me, and this is a little oddball, so bear with me, but what struck me is that I think Ghostbusters is the kind of Model for the emergent church. Okay. <laughs> I know. Okay. So obviously, it's not the Ghostbusters themselves are not a traditional church. In the film, we have images of traditional places of worship and traditional religious figures. We have the priest who sits in the mayor's office with them as they're um, debating what to do at the end of the film. We have uh, a variety of religious figures who are lining the streets uh, when the Ghostbusters are pulling up to the building and the climax. Uh, what well, we haven't said what the Ghostbusters are, you know, in a very kind of, to use the very modern sense, a bunch of spiritual but not religious figures. And and I would argue that this plays out in two really interesting ways. the The first way is that it plays out in their collective belief in something that is at least at the beginning of the film, beyond the normal expected reality of the world. Now, obviously, as the film goes on, we have this apocalyptic invasion, and that may be something that we want to talk about in a a different way, but the Ghostbusters, as we meet them at the beginning, are are believers in something that they can't necessarily see, and I I, I think we'd be foolish to dismiss that as part of their religious identity, or at least their spiritual identity. And the second thing, and then you cut in the second thing is that i I think the ghostbusters have a really interesting missional outlook right i mean this is not this <laughs> right. it's, it's not a monastic community; they are embedded in this place, and their sense of what it is to be a worshipping community is to be um outside of their doors and engaging with the city around them and within that, they have some really interesting congregational figures they have Ray, who is kind of the scholar and the cleric he's the keeper of these sacred texts he knows the deep history you have egon who seems to be the kind of true believer from the very beginning and you have venkman as this kind of leader and pragmatist but also has to be converted in his own way and then you have winston and i think winston's really fascinating in his own way but winston who in some ways just really wants to belong so i I don't want to push too hard with this. Uh, obviously, the Ghostbusters aren't small o orthodox Christians, but still, I think there's an interesting idea there about what a, a church community
0: could be. Right. So you, I mean, you, cut, so cut I was, yeah, I was watching this and trying to think. Similarly, like, what does it mean to do ministry in the vein of the Ghostbusters? Which sounds like among the most inane questions I've ever asked myself and seemed like a full stretch. Um, but then again, I have such deep affinity for this group of people uh, that I have to believe in some ways they have something to teach me, that that somehow the power and the lasting power of this story and why I continue to come back to it over and over again is not just because I find it humorous, but because I find it human, that I find something in these archetypes of the Ghostbusters as relevant for my life um, and as I've gotten older, as I've continued to do more ministry, as I've um, continued to teach people who do ministry, I think I I continue to recognize something about them that is indicative of what I'd like to be in um, in ministry. I also think that I share uh, the Ghostbusters' ultimate vision of the world. That is, I think that this movie is so committed to the idea that this small group of people, outsiders really, are likely to initiate real change into the world. And as I think about my own theology, my own ecclesiology, I I believe in the church, capital C, but I also believe that local congregations are the paradigmatic expression of that capital C church. I think the stuff in between the congregations has value. I mean, denominations have value to an extent. Similarly, I actually think that the EPA is a really necessary governmental agency, though it gets skewered pretty deeply in this movie. Yeah, um, But I don't believe that real, lasting, important change comes from those large-scale institutions. I think it comes on a very local level. So as I look at the Ghostbusters and their vision of how they approach the world, I'm always impressed by the pragmatism of Venkman and the 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 true passion and care that Ray has for like ectoplasm and things like that. And I think I think that type of um those those archetypes play out well at least in my experience as we as we look around the the landscape of what it means to do Christian ministry. So I would agree
1: with all of that. And as I have been thinking about it, I mean so I'm you know, you're a congregationalist, you are you have <laughs> that paradigmatic sense of church and I am Presbyterian and PCUSA, I have something more invested in denominational structure and superstructure. Uh it, it also means that somewhere deep down in there is a lot of Calvin, right? And so right. I the the part of me that uh is still answering polity ordination exams immediately springs to Calvin's marks of the church whenever I have to think about whether or not something counts. So I found myself this morning trying to figure out whether I thought that the Ghostbusters satisfied Calvin's three marks of the church, which are a, which is a, a place where the word is rightfully proclaimed and sacrament is rightly administered and discipline is rightly maintained. Now, again, I, this is pretty far afield, and I'm not... Trying to make a case that the Presbytery of New York needs to go give some money to the Ghostbusters and bring them into the fold, but it's it's. But I but I do. I, what I guess what I want to push, and I think you're trying to push the same thing, is um, as the church begins to think about what kinds of alternate forms and expressions it begins to take in the next century. How do the ghostbusters help us push up against the edge of the stuff that we 're normally familiar and comfortable with, and I think you can argue that as the ghostbusters begin to diagnose and filter this these apocalyptic events that are happening that in the conversation uh, that Ray and Winston have in the car together about um, about Jesus and about the end of days and about the dead rising that you have in some sense a kind of word proclaimed and that when bankman who is the skeptic and i think this is my best of these three points when bankman who is the skeptic goes into the hotel and is basically slimed right it's when they first meet slimer (laughs) and and it's his encounter with slimer that that really finally converts him to the realization that they are dealing with something true, that that is a kind of baptism rightly administered. Right,
0: right, go for it. And then, Keep going.
1: so all we have left is the the discipline rightly administered, which in Calvin's understanding is a way of marking the boundaries between the church and the world around it. And I think what the way that discipline plays out in this film is some of the stuff you've already talked about. It's the way in which the Ghostbusters have an internal sense of rules that don't conform to the rules of the governments and institutions that surround them. So the EPA comes in and says, you have to open up this power grid because it's in violation of this and this. And Egon knows, no, wait, we have rules that are that supersede that uh, because of the community of faith that we're in. And okay, right. yeah. So now I've just written like a freshman English paper on the Ghostbusters and that's all well and good. <laughs> and I and, and I still think we get to figure out what to do with that. And and I and I and I think you're kind of
0: already onto it. Right. And I, I mean to not to get too beta about what we're doing here, I, I think the danger of you and I talking about uh movies with relation to church ministry, is to think about this uh, almost allegorically, like that every movie is just in some ways some reflection of ministry. Uh, I think we we have to patrol ourselves in order not to do that. Um, I also want to recognize um, that part of the reason that I love having this conversation with you is that I believe that even movies like the Ghostbusters teach us about our world and ministry, that, that there are ways ins and out of talking about this. And that it's the perspective of others that widens our understanding of the world. I mean, so similarly, when you talk about the emergent church, I think also it's the job in some ways of encountering different, different practice, different categories. Our initial reaction is to defend ourselves and our right to do things like we used to do it. In doing so, we betray the fact. That we are ignorant, and that coming into contact with difference—and I see this all over the Ghostbusters, actually—is that coming into contact with difference and that thing that operates according to, uh, uh, according to different terms, is really important for us. I mean, that is the always reforming part of the Reformed Church, right? What is the agent of reform in, uh, in the Reformed Church? I. I'm not sure it's the institution itself, because I think institutions are inherently conservative. I think it's that outside, those outsiders who are the ones calling for reform, and we ignore them at our own peril, and we would do well to recognize that they have or they belong in our churches as well, that they're necessary for us.
1: Is there a way that, that, that then in Ghostbusters, the academy is, kind of stands in in some ways for the conversation we're having about the institutional
0: church? Oh, right. I mean, this. <laughs> in some ways, the Ghostbusters hit a little too close to home for me. Um, as I watch uh, institutions failing to see the signs of a devolving situation and outsiders telling them that the sky is falling, that it's actually falling. And everyone's saying, well, I don't think so. Not yet. I mean, this sounds so suspiciously uh, like a stand-in for theological education and for denominationalism in the 21st century. Two things of which I'm intimately involved with. And so I I can't help but watch the Ghostbusters and be like, oh my gosh. Like the academy kicking out people who think differently. Yeah, been there. Seen that. Um, The church. Not all that interested in having people who think differently. Yep, been there, seen that. Um the courage that people have to have to strike out on their own and by the courage of their own convictions. Okay, yeah, seen that as well. I and I have to say, like, I am suspicious of these institutions and like the Ghostbusters, I, I admire those who have the ability to uh to strike out on their own. Even if what they're doing is not because they're true believers. I mean, I think that's the the great power of the Peter Bankman character, is that he never seems to take anything seriously. You can't, he doesn't seem to have convictions of any sort besides his own sort of narcissism. And yet he continues to act. And I think that there's a message for ministry in in that moment as well. But that's what we think, Matt. So I, I kind of believe what you're saying, and, I kinda, and I'm kind kind
1: of skeptical, Adam, but I'm, I'm ready to act, and I'm ready to go on. So let's do it. Let's move on to a little concrete preaching. Our next segment this afternoon is called Preaching to the Choir. We're looking at the lectionary passages for year C for the final Sunday in Lent, which is Palm Sunday. And what I want to know from you is, preacher to preacher,
0: Sunday's coming, where is Ghostbusters going to show up in your sermon? So as I look at the Palm Sunday text for year C this year, uh, it's the Luke uh, Palm Sunday text. And I I wanna talk a little bit about satire. There seems to be good evidence that part of the Palm Sunday processional was meant to be satirical. There is some historical evidence that uh, yearly during the Passover, Roman authorities would make a great show, uh, like a major parade. Of their entry into Jerusalem. Considering that so much of uh, the Jewish population was making pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and because all of those people talking about uh, an oppressed people being liberated by a God who led them out of bondage was a message that was um, threatening to the Roman authorities, it seems that Pilate or someone like Pilate would mount a massive war horse and lead a military processional to the gates of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus enters in Jerusalem riding a donkey, he's doing so to fulfill the prophecies, as as the scriptures say. But it also seems that he's making a political statement about what he's doing in relationship to the Roman imperial army that is doing the same thing on the opposite side of Jerusalem. And so, as I think about this, I think about Jesus riding this donkey, creating this moment where he thumbs his nose at the powerful. And Ghostbusters is, in many ways, a movie about the triumph of the underdog over the elite. The Ghostbusters are kicked out of the academy by this sniveling Dean, um, a character that shows up a lot in Harold Ramis' pictures. Uh, Right. They are shut down by the government. They destroy a fine hotel. Uh, Venkman teases the guy from the symphony out in front of um, the the Metropolitan Symphony Hall there in New York. Right. There are these fine diners that are oblivious to the fact that a ghost has just possessed a man outside their window. Uh, Even these high-priced real estates on Central Park West. That's where the portal to right. an inter- di- interdimensional Sumerian god comes into our world. I mean, in some ways, hell is opening up, and it's not in Hell's Kitchen; it's in Central Park West. And the way in which um, Venkman teases everybody—no one is immune to this—is indicative of the power that comes from the weak, which is you have to you have to critique obliquely. And you have to make little moments of critical theater. And Venkman is in many ways this clown, but he's a clown in the sense of those medieval clowns who joke and play in order that they might say the truth, but they have to say it obliquely. I think Jesus is doing something similar. When he enters into Jerusalem, he comes clownish, a way to poke fun at the parade of the imperial army. And yet that critique is serious, it's
1: deathly serious so Jesus as kind of satirical performance artist
0: I think so. I mean I think yeah. he's 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 the he's the buffoon you know the um the the outcast who who at one point gets entry into the city of the the center of the city. And as he does, he's able to say the truthful things that no one else is able to say.
1: So we've been thinking about the same text. I mean, it's to be blunt, it's Palm Sunday. There aren't a lot of lectionary options and the the big text is this text in Luke 19 where Jesus enters the city. And I've been thinking along the same lines, but kind of with a different emphasis. So maybe I'll just kind of join my preaching to the choir and with yours here. The I, and I've been thinking about the role of the city of New York and Jerusalem and thinking about the role of the crowd. And I, I think there, we get to skewering of the elites kind of either way. Uh, the, the Luke text is a little different than the parallel versions in Matthew and Mark. In, that in Matthew and Mark, we have very clear indications that we have a, a large crowd from Jerusalem that has come to watch this entrance and matthew talks about a very large crowd mark has bystanders all along the path uh the luke text talks about a whole multitude of disciples hmm. uh and it's not explicitly clear that you have the city itself that has come out there may be some there at the very end of the text it says that there are pharisees in the crowd who talk to him but it's It's not clear that the crowd is participating in the celebration the same way, which is really interesting because, of course, as half the Palm Sunday sermons you've ever heard have pointed out, the crowd that celebrates the entrance on the Sunday is the same crowd, in theory, that is hoisting him up and calling for his crucifixion on Mm -hmm. Friday morning. I think Ghostbusters is really interesting as parallel in the way that as you've kind of already begun to say, it kind of, it loves the crowd of New York, and while really hating individual New Yorkers. Uh, right, right. You know, the the, the the named characters from New York that we have in the film, with the possible exception of the mayor who kind of converts and gets along with it, are, are, are not well represented. They are skewered, as you point out, because they are, in general, representatives of institutions and upper crust elites. But, The city has a great love for New York, broadly. I mean, Ernie Hudson at the end of the film was on the building. I love this town, right? And I, I was thinking about Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver. Like, what, eight years earlier, the city is an open sewer. It's full of filth and scum. Ghostbusters is almost in dead conversation with that to say, no, man, this city is beautiful, but it's not the elites who make it beautiful. It's all the people who are lining the parade route. At the end of the film, all these kind of anonymous, unknown folks who are celebrating with the Ghostbusters as they come down from the building and, and drive away, who are chanting for them, who are unnamed. And I I think that's, you know, and, and it's, it's elsewhere, too. It's the, the prisoners in the jail cell, right? When the Ghostbusters are imprisoned and they're starting to work on their plan and you get the guys in the cell who begin to lean in and kind of buy in and... I think it's interesting for Luke to talk about, um, we're, t- we're setting up for the story of the salvation of a crowd. The individuals there act kind of terribly. It's it's Well, and that's in, such, such you know, an
0: interesting point, Matt, which is I think we too quickly tie these cries of rejoicing, the hosannas, to um, the crowd that condemns Jesus later. Because it seems like Jesus doesn't make some indication on this ride in that this is anything but genuine, right? In fact, he says when when the when the Pharisees try to shut him up, he says, "Look, even the rocks will cry out if they stop. Something's going to cry out that it seems necessary that this triumphal entry happens this way, um, and that we ought not move so quickly to the hypocrisy." of what happens when you celebrate one day and then condemn the next um in part because that is so fundamental to our own humanity i mean jesus knows why he's coming in he knows the 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 depth of um of the sin that permeates this place i mean in all the other passages you know he 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 calls out to jerusalem right jerusalem jerusalem Sure. How I've longed to gather you like a hand gathers your chicks. Uh, he seems to understand the depth of it and yet still revels in the fact that these celebrations seem genuine. And that seems so fair. Like we in the midst of it, my, my great celebrations of faith often come up against great missteps.
1: Yeah. And I guess as I'm looking at the text, I mean, I I, I'm trying to one of the things I'm trying to tease out is why for Luke why Luke's account is different, why Luke doesn't rely on the the crowd from Jerusalem in the same way. And I right, right. I and I, I, I may be overreading it a little bit and I, I'll I'll own that. But it seems like what that allows for Luke to do is to put some of that space between the to, to not have to um wrestle with hypocrisy in the same way and to put some of the space in between the characters that we get to know and then the whole city for whom Jesus is coming. And, and so you can have Ernie on the rooftop screaming, I love this town, even when all the representatives of the town have been terrible to him. Um, And and it's, it's the, it's again, it's, it's all the unnamed folks that are, Really, what's at stake, and it's Jerusalem as a corporate entity that is um really what's going on it's it's in Luke's sense it's salvation for the unnamed and i don't I don't think that's a bad analog for for ghostbusters
0: well and to to think about Ernie Hudson saying, "I love this town, I think he's also recognizing that like this can only happen here, right, like mm. where else in the world you know, and I think similarly, like you could say the same thing for Jesus, he's like, where else? You know? Like, where else could this happen? You know? This is where it has to go down. There is, this is the still point of the turning world. And I think if you talk to real New Yorkers, that's how they understand New York as well. And you can see a sort of problem with that parochialism. And I live in Boston, look. I mean, I've met people here who grew up in Boston Married someone and took a honeymoon to uh to like Cape Cod. That's as far as they go. Yeah, sure. Um, well, so it's this place there. and its parochialness can get to you, and yet there is some deep charm in the loyalty that comes from saying where else but here. And I think I think you can see that in the passage as well, which is like where else but Jerusalem?
1: Right, it's the center of the theological world, and that for the context of that story
0: it has to happen there absolutely um and that's what makes it so rich and interesting it's that this place has a parade on the other side of it this place has all of this other history this place um you know there are people giving sacrifices right now this place is like where we're going to celebrate uh the passover and the blood is going to be sprinkled on this place is like the the center of the religious world i mean I think I think it's wise to recognize that New York and Jerusalem function similarly in these two stories in the sense that like they are uniquely positioned to hold this type of story. So, moving on. Ghostbusters is a classic. And if you haven't seen it, may you be smoked by Gozer the Gozerian. Uh, Ghostbusters is comes and goes from Netflix. Right now, you can rent it on iTunes and Amazon and on YouTube. You might also want to check out the new trailer for the remake of Ghostbusters by Paul Feig, and it's starring Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones. And uh, that trailer came out two days ago, Matt? Yesterday? Yesterday. Or, and have you watched it yet? Yeah, I did watch it. Uh, yeah. It looks good. I have to say, um, they're doing a good job of not making the characters like for like, but making this story accessible or yeah, familiar.
1: It's, yeah. It's very familiar. It, it reminded me a lot of the um, force awakens and the sense of like, how familiar can we get and also have something new to say? I'll be curious to see how well that tracks when it comes out.
0: Right. And I think Kate McKinnon uh, deserves this.
1: Oh, absolutely. I and think more. she's great and yeah. amazing.
0: So, uh now it's time for our last segment this is called postludes and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following or reading or studying so matt what's your post lead for the week all right at the risk of making a complete fool of myself i want to talk about a comic book
1: uh i want to talk about a comic book and this is deeply unfamiliar territory for me because i am not a comic book guy like I have seen lots of comic book movies. I have watched lots of properties based off of comic books, but I have You've in heard my life, Marvel? I've heard of Marvel and DC, but like in my life, I have zero comic books. Uh, until recently when after... I thought I knew you, Matt. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Until recently, after multiple recommendations, I decided to spring and try the new incarnation of Miss Marvel, uh, uh, a character by the name of Kamala Khan. This is a a series that's been put, put together, and I'm going to butcher some names, but I do want to give credit by um, Sana Amanat and G Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfona. And the so Miss Marvel and I have learned all of this in like the last week. So you know, feel free to weigh in, folks who know more than me. Uh, the deep history is a character named Carol Danvers, who is the classic Miss Marvel character who led the Avengers, and Carol Danvers is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, stereotypical American white girl. Uh, the new incarnation, Kamala Khan, has been revamped as a Pakistani-American. She's the child of immigrants living in Jersey City, and she is among other things, obsessed with Carol Danvers. Uh, and some comic book stuff happens to Kamala Khan, as a high school girl, and she mist comes and gives her powers, and now she can change form, and when she wakes up the first time, she is now Carol Danvers. And she looks, she's become a superhero, she's become the thing she always wanted to be. She wanted to be a superhero, and she's become the superhero that she wanted to be, which is the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, stereotypical white girl. And then quickly she figures out that she can shift into all kinds of things, and she shifts back, and she shifts back to herself, and she shifts to all kinds of other stuff. And what happens in the thrust of the story is, right, that she is wrestling with her own sense of identity as a brown body in a white country and more to the point, a kind of historically white narrative. And I I found this really refreshing and fascinating in a way that has struck me as being deeply relevant for my experience of churches. Uh, you know, the the story is really well told and it's beautifully illustrated and I highly recommend the Miss Marvel series on its own. But... For me, the kind of church takeaway is, look, like, I'm not an outsider to much in America, right? Like, I'm a 30-something straight white male, but I'm kind of an outsider to comic books. Like, it means something <laughs> to me that I, don't, right. that I come to this and I have no idea what's going on. Like, I've seen some movies, but I don't know the deep history of all this stuff. I don't even really know. Like, I'm even I'm on Amazon trying to buy this thing, and I don't even know what to shop for. Like their individual issues and their volumes and their different numbers. And I don't like, I can't even decipher what's happening. But it was, once I got into it, incredibly refreshing to me to read something that, through the character of this Pakistani American girl, acknowledged in the universe the possibility of being an outsider. And so that her wrestling with coming from the outsider's perspective into this Avengers universe in some ways mirrored my experience of. Coming into a comic book universe as someone who didn't understand the language, and I, I think about that in the context of our churches and, in my context, and the the problems of representation that we have in our own pulpits. You know, right. Yeah. We have. I am mm-hmm. in a denomination that is overwhelmingly white, with an overwhelmingly white number of pastors who are overwhelmingly male, uh, especially heads of staff. In some corners, we are working to broaden our diversity and our diversity of representation behind the pulpit and we could certainly be doing much more and one of the arguments that's made for that is to say look we you know we are trying to broaden our reach into multiple um and into multiple diverse contexts but it seems to me that there's something to be said even as for for the experience of any outsider and not just a minority outsider to walk into a church and see someone who is not a straight white male from the pulpit, I I think for me it gives a sense of this is a church that knows how to welcome outsiders even on its staff and even in its pulpit. What could it do to welcome me as someone who might not speak all the language
0: and know all the words? Right. Like that, I mean, and or or the forms right like right trying to figure out how to. When to stand, when to sit, that stuff is the the bodied expectations of the people that we that come into our churches are very rarely uh taken into account as we uh, as we ask them to participate uh yeah, I mean this idea of hospitality I think is so so important for the church right now, and it's um, it's either overlooked or sort of explained away by this idea that we're radically hospitable uh Because we will welcome anybody into our church, but rarely do we give them the power to, like, you know, change the furniture around. You know, they're guests and they never move from the role of guest to host. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so I've just, reading Miss Marvel has kind of cued
1: that for me about the kind of relationship between identity and identification and what we're trying to do in terms of just
0: being open and what right. that really means. Anyway, that's what I've got. Adam, what about you? So, as I as I think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, I'm reminded of this strange history of the donkey in um in Christian worship and in Christian um, semiotics and in Christian iconography. Uh the donkey shows up fairly early in Christian history as a as a sign of deliverance and a sign of faithful service and that that sign is borrowed not just from Jesus entering into the don- into Jerusalem on a donkey but also from uh Mary and Joseph riding on a donkey into Bethlehem now now scripture never says that Mary and Joseph ride on a donkey into Bethlehem and yet it's assumed within the first 100 years of the church that is the mode of transportation that Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem from. And so this donkey shows up really early. And what's interesting is that that the donkey in Roman thought was, uh, was a sign of stubbornness and stupidity. And very early, the Christian church reframes and reforms that symbol to be one of deliverance. And as I think about the way that Jesus is inverting ideas of imperial power, similarly, the donkey, as it shows up in the Incarnation, the Advent story, is also an inversion of power, where Herod has this imperial army out trying to find um, Mary, Joseph, and the newborn Christ. And apparently, they're on a donkey, slowly making their way to Egypt, and all of the Roman Imperial Army can't find them, even though they have all of these war horses at their expenses uh, so this this idea of the donkey, the war horse it's, it's all been sort of rattling around in my head, and there seems to be these really interesting Russian Orthodox instances where the patriarch would dress a war horse as a donkey during the Passion Week and would ride around from town to town. And so that image has been sort of lodged in my brain about how often we pretend we're riding a donkey because we want the uh the institutional and pious perks of looking humble when really we love riding a astride the steed of of power um It also got me thinking about the ways in which Easter. And Christmas are connected, and part of the thing that is so interesting to me as I try and connect these two major Christian holidays is how um how bodied they are uh It's full of real human stuff, and we deodorize that human stuff at our own risk, I think um there is blood and sweat and tears that show up in passion week mm-hmm. and that is the stuff of human beings of bodies and it's created um by bodies and it's not just jesus um suffering in spirit it's also suffering in body it's not just a bo- it's not just a resurrection of spirit it's a resurrection of an actual body similarly I think we have all of these nativity scenes um, that deodorize that initial manger. And there is no, um, there aren't any bloody rags with amniotic fluid on them. There isn't, um, there isn't like excrement. There isn't all of these things that you would expect to find there. And so we've sort of deodorized it and created scenes where there aren't bodies. This is the long prelude to talk about this, cattle, uh, this little figure in nativity scenes in Catalan, in Barcelona specifically, um, called the Caganer, which is uh, the Spanish word for the defecator. And so, <laughs> and, um, and, and this is totally true, and I'm, it's okay. showed up in my research and I'm actually writing quite a bit about this right now. Um, there is this little figure of a peasant hiding in the nativity scenes in Catalan and he's defecating and it's a fun thing for children to find and it's a sort of larger moment of uh or or people think it's some sort of pagan intrusion to talk about the sort of agrarian societies that need fertilizer and worship the earth and um and balance their the 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 time in their lives according to seasons, especially seasons of growth and um and harvest. And yet I think that there's also like real theological merit to the presence of this person doing the sure. stuff that humans do. Donkeys and, too. And donkeys, and and that to recognize the real human side of these events is to, in some ways, invert the world, and especially the Christian world, that wants to divorce body and spirit and fall into this dualism that I think is really harmful for the church. And I think, to bring it back to Rome, is a vestige of Roman philosophical thought. And throughout history, you find these other cultures. Who don't agree with this dualism that comes out of Rome and Greece and says no we are actually more unified than that and so I mean we see that in the Kageter I think we also see that in um, ancient uh, Jewish rabbinic sources where they had prayers for when they had to defecate and they said their prayers then and they put up signs when they were having sex with their um, with their partners because you know why should i be ashamed of this thing sure. that i do with my body uh so as people begin to think about the palm sunday into the passion during holy week i just want to encourage you to think really deeply about the ways in which these are full of bodies so that's that's my postlude for today all right adam Speaking of the history of Christian asses, it's about
1: time to wrap up this episode of Technicolor Jesus.
0: <laughs> Another but, couple of Christian asses.
1: Yeah, but we are not quite done yet. I got to pick Ghostbusters, and now it's Adam's turn. Adam, we have just done Palm Sunday. It's gonna be Easter before we know it. So, what's
0: our Easter movie gonna be? What are you gonna make me watch? So, I'll I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, in seminary, we had to, or in grad school, we had to take this teaching uh, seminar where they try and teach us how to be professors. And a colleague of mine uh, created this syllabus about uh, theology and cinema. And it was erudite in the way that this, this guy always was. And he is so kind and so nice. But I got mad in the middle of it because it was largely foreign films and films that no one had ever heard of. And I felt like it lacked the sort of populism that I think is so important to uh, to uh, to the medium itself and how accessible it can be to so many different people. And so I looked at him as he asked for um, feedback on this and I said, you know, where the hell is E.T.? <laughs> And so as we think about Easter, about the perspective of the women in Luke, um, mm. which is the uh, lectionary passage, um, as the um, the first witnesses and the first testimony to the resurrected Christ, uh, I thought it was appropriate to dive into the world of the valley in California and uh, an unexpected friendship between a little boy named Elliot and his extraterrestrial friend. Um, and I think it's fitting that we, um, we examine a movie that focuses on um, people who aren't believed mm-hmm. as we listen to the testimony of um, those first women who weren't believed. Beautiful. So, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So that wraps it up for today. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to find us on SoundCloud, SoundCloud and find us on iTunes if you like the show tell a friend leave a review on iTunes that's really helpful for us every review helps and we will see you next time thanks Matt thanks Adam